You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hey, I'm Karen Ruiz, and I make hats for a living. For 32 years, Karen Ruiz has been the owner, designer, and driving force behind Lilliput Hats. From her atelier in Toronto's Little Italy, Karen creates custom hats and headpieces for film, TV, and musicians, including those worn by Gord Downey on the Tragically Hips Man Machine Poem Tour. Here's my chat with Karen Ruiz. Who are you, and what do you make for a living? I'm Karen Ruiz, and I'm the owner and designer of Lilliput Hats, which is a traditional millinery shop company. So what's a millinery shop company? What does that mean? So a milliner is somebody who makes hats. I often get the question um, from people, it's like, oh, you're a haberdasher. And I think the truth is people love to say the word haberdasher because it's, it's a cool word. sounding old, old timey word, right? <laughs> As is milliner, but most people are more familiar with haberdasher. But anyway, a milliner is somebody who um, creates hats, mostly for women, but we also do for men, um, using a, a, a traditional technique of uh, blocking by hand. I'm going to use a hand, a lot of hand gestures because I no work problem. with my that, hands. <laughs> that they translates won't be, well. They in won't a be visual, but. <laughs> what inspired you to get into millining? Is that the right verb? Uh, into millinery. Millinery. There you go. Yes. What inspired you to do so? So I don't know that there's actually a verb to millinery, but anyway, I have to think about that. We'll look um, it up after this. It was, yes, uh, it was actually a, a very happy accident. So just a quick background. I have a, a social work background. Um, I was working in post-psychiatric care and corrections, and uh, this was 1987. And I just moved from London to Toronto and I was going to go back and do a master's degree at Ryerson in social work. Um, in the meantime, I had to, you know, uh, keep waitressing. So I was working as a waiter um, uh, in the annex at a great little Italian cafe. Um, and I didn't want to get sucked into the whole waiter lifestyle where you do your shift and then you, you know, you hang out and, you know, it just becomes like late into the night. So I thought, well, um, I had just seen this film called White Nights. I don't know if you've ever seen it with Mikhail Baryshnikov and Gregory Hines. It's, it's a kind of an average film. But the tap dance scenes alone are phenomenal. Amazing. And I watched this movie and I thought, oh, geez, I'd really like to learn how to tap dance. So I, at the time, I was living across from Central Tech High School. And they had a wonderful uh, continuing ed night school program. So I went, um, this is 1987 to sign up for a tap dance class. It was full, go figure. So I thought, well, I'm here, you know, what am I gonna take of flower arranging, bread making? That would have been good now. Um, uh, no, you know what? I'll take this hat making course. Cause I was really into vintage clothing and reworking them. And I wore a lot of crazy vintage hats and I thought, well, this will kind of be fun. So I, um, so I took this continuing ed class, I think it was six or eight weeks or something. I thought I'm, I think I'm pretty good at this. And so I just started using things around the house. I didn't have any blocks, which are the building block of what I do. They are uh, the molds that create the shapes, that create the hat. And um, so they're essential to the business. So I didn't have any of these. I didn't know where to find them. Um, so I started using things around the house, like anything I could stretch a piece of material over, like a wooden salad bowl or a citrus juice or something that would give me an ornamental sculptural 
look by using my hands, I would, I would use to shape. I was taking apart vintage hats at that point. I didn't know where to source raw materials. So, oh, so you were actually taking old hats, ripping them apart and making your own hats with them. Yes. Yes. That's how I started. Yeah. How did you go then from ripping apart old hats for materials, using salad bowls and uh, whatever you could find in your house to selling, to making, to being pro at this? Well, it was a long process in between. Um, so I started scouring antique shops for hat molds. Eventually I found one and then two and then three. And three became such that I could rework different shapes by manipulating material. I started finding resources um, that sold me traditional hat making material like felts, like straw. Um, and I just started experimenting and I built my hat block collection, which still continues to grow. I probably have over a thousand hat blocks now. Um, and they are the things that every day greet me with this kind of a warm woody hug. That doesn't sound too creepy. Um, uh, and because they have such history behind them, um, they really define largely what I can do, but not limiting to what I can do. So the, the, these, these wooden molds became the building foundation of my shop and, and my work. Um, and as I accumulated more, I was able to produce more styles. At one point I thought, well, I'm going to make my own block. So went back to the continuing ed program where I first took the, the, uh, the tap dance class, which evolved into the hat making class, Thought I'll sign up for a woodworking class, make my own hat blocks. When I got there, I was the only woman in the class and I was relegated to either making a spice rack or um, an end table, neither of which I wanted to make. So I was insistent that I carve my own blocks. And the class was well equipped with a lathe, which is what I needed to turn the shapes. And, and then I realized the course of using all this machinery, the lathes, which had quite a kickback. And um, I, I kind of need my hands. So this probably is not a good um, area for me to pursue in a, in, in a big way. So I made my own, uh, hat block, which was kind of a, an interesting mad hatter shape. This was the eighties, by the way. So that shape kind of took me through a couple of decades and it's still a hat block that I use today. So. And a hat block for those of us that are not, uh, up on millinery is it's literally the shape that the actual hat will take. That's a hundred percent right. And within outside of those basic shapes, you get very sculptural things, like things that go back to um, the Art Deco era or the 1920s era or 1940s where things were small and perchy, like you saw in films like The Women. So within the, within the hat block world, the shapes are endless. And in having crown which is the top of the which is the top part of the hat and a brim which is the the brim the peak um you can interchange them and that's how we create you know all kinds of different styles both for men and women by interchanging them and and uh, removing a piece or you know um oh how do i explain this shaping beyond uh, an established crown height so that you get something that's oversized or undersized so it's just, it's all there for the taking. See, and I think a lot of people think a hat's a hat. I mean, especially in Canada, they think a toque is a hat, really. Yeah. 
<laughs> but looking at your work, it is pretty evident that there is just sort of an, an endless array of things that one could make. A lot of your stuff is wearable and a lot of your stuff really pushes the boundaries. For example, um, that big brimmed hat, you know, the Gord Downey wore on, on that final show, that was yours, wasn't it? Yes, yes, uh, yes. All the hats that he wore on the last uh, Man Machine poem tour were mine um, uh, that were designed specifically for the tour as well as um, a couple of other things that I designed for him for uh, his Secret Path um, uh, solo initiative. And if you don't mind my asking, were you close with Gord? You know, we we got very close through the process because as you can imagine, um, the enormity of, of that I don't even want to call it a task. I'm going to call it a, a, a beautiful opportunity. Was uh, daunting, if you can imagine, creating something that sat on the head with everything going on in that head. Um, I, I knew I had to get it right. And so, you know, it started because he sent me this great black and white photograph of Bob Dylan, circa. Um, desire era, 70s. I don't know if you saw the Scorsese documentary, which is fantastic, but it was that era where he was wearing this kind of kind of a top hat with a wider brim and with dried flowers, and he was just a great style icon. And so Gord was sort of channeling a bit of that in what he wanted. Um, and so we developed a closeness as the tour kind of rolled out, starting in Victoria, I would get texts and emails and and um, messages from him that just said, your hat made me feel great. Or So in a very short time, I felt close to him. I also felt like he, I don't say this very often, that people and things change my life. I don't say that very often. I feel like meeting him and working with him um, did change my life. Let me ask you, how did he find you? Like, did he find you because of your work? Did, did Was it a referral? Who, who, uh, who put you guys together? Um, when Gord just, when the tour was announced, um, and I have to tell you, this, this all happened very, very quickly. The, the, you know, um, we, he, he announced that he was ill. The tour got announced. Um, the documentary about the, uh, the tour got started. Um, and he found me through uh, Izzy Camilleri, who is the great Canadian designer behind the beautiful metallic leather suits. And so Izzy and I had worked on a number of different projects together, some commercial things, some costumey things. And so when he decided he wanted custom hats made, Izzy said, you have to meet Karen. She's, you know. And so that's, that's how we started working together. Obviously, this is a huge transformation from I'm making my own blocks to I'm doing Gord Downey's hats for his final tour. Did you ever doubt that you would make a living doing this? I think for many years, I treated it as a hobby. I think I still in my mind thought that I was gonna go back and continue working in the social work field. Um, I, I just didn't visualize how I could make a living. I mean, I, I come from a really working class family with an, you know, a, a father who has an incredible work ethic. He worked at Algoma Steel for his entire life. Um, 
was he a creative guy? He was a creative problem solver. And so I felt like I could spin this into something, but I didn't, I think at that point, really know that making a living was possible. Like you make something, you sell it, you take that money, you reinvest it in yourself, you buy another block, you buy more materials, and 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 then it is, and so on and so on, and, and and that becomes your process. And before you know it, ten years have passed, and you're grown out of your apartment studio where your sewing machine was on your dining room table. You have an assistant who's an intern, and then you have to move out of that space. So you go, okay, well. Hmm, where am I going to move? I have a lot of, I have a clientele from the Orthodox Jewish community that don't want to, that don't want to come downtown. So, and Bathurst is kind of like the marker for them. I was easy to get to. So I thought, well, I can't go any further than College Street. It felt like that is as far as they would reasonably come. And also College Street has, uh, has a wonderful Jewish history to it. Um, a lot of my clients grew up along College Street. Sam Snoderman's store was, Sam the Record Man was on College Street. There's like, you know, it had proximity to Spadina and Kensington and everything. And it just, it felt like a good street. And so when this building came up for rent, actually it came up for sale. And my accountant for many years had been saying, you got to go to that, see those Sherman Taylors. Man, they've been tailors on College Street for so many years I remember walking in one day, day and there were three old guys cutting out cloth. Um, you know, the place was a haze of cigarette smoke. Uh, and I thought, these guys aren't retiring. There's no way. So I just kind of backed myself out the door. Um, and then the, the building came up uh, for sale. But at that time, you know, of course, I'm a renter, was a renter all my life. So it's like I couldn't even fathom the possibility of owning a building let alone moving into a ground floor retail space. But I decided that I was going to rent the main space. So we renovated it. Um, and it had, uh, it had a great landlord who was, who was generous and reasonable. Um, and so I was able to open the shop. And I think at that point, I mean, that's 12 years into the business already where I'm like, okay, I think this is what I'm doing now. <laughs> I guess it's what I'm doing now. Your career crept up on you. It it kind of did. And I mean, you know, leading up to that time, it was um, engaging in um, small curated craft shows so that I had an outlet to sell where I was able to get feedback from people that said, oh, this is great or this isn't great. I would put a box on the back of my bicycle go down to Queen West, which at the time in the late 80s, early 90s, had some fantastic Canadian independent shops like Fashion Crimes and Hoax Couture and 290 Ion. And I would leave things on consignment and lo and behold, they would sell. Um, so I would go and pick up a little bit of money, go buy more raw materials. And it, it, it kept me working. It kept me um, interested. It kept me engaged. It kept me challenged. And so I started growing that part of the business, doing more shows, um, creating a wholesale collection for a shop like Holt Renfrew, who found me in the parking lot. Not like, <laughs> not like having a roller skating accident, but just like 
I was selling at a, at a summer craft market and the buyer from Holt Renfrew came in and I had been kind of creeping her at Holt Renfrew, just skulking around, looking at how things were made. And she kind of caught me out one day and said, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And I'm just like, oh, I, uh, you know, I just wanted to see how things were made. And so one day she came by my booth, which my father had ingeniously made for me out of uh, chicken wire. And the piece de resistance of this booth that he created for me um, was this copper sign that said Lilliput hats, all made out of copper plumbing. I still have it. It's absolutely fantastic. Even, he even My dad even made like the eyes over the Lilliput out of like little copper caps. It's quite amazing. Uh, so the buyer at that point said, well, Karen, you know, if you want to sell at Holt Renfrew, you can't sell out of a parking lot. So I thought that that was good advice. Makes and, sense. Um, right? Um, but I think the other thing that she was saying to me was that you have a great product, you know, uh, but the way to showcase it is not here. And so I still continued to do markets, but I was more selective about them. And I created a small space within my original studio space where shop, uh, shop buyers were able to come and buy my collection wholesale, which then grew my wholesale part of the business. That's a really nice tip to have gotten from somebody who probably didn't need to help you out. Obviously, she was seeing something very worthwhile happening and just wanted to point you in the right direction and see if you would figure it out from there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I was fortunate because uh, that was a uh, that was a very nice twenty five year relationship with um, with what was um, a great luxury retailer, um, and I learned a lot from that. Um, uh, lessons that I, I still, that still stay with me in terms of taking risks and, and, and developing those long, develop, developing long-term relationships, which are really important in business. I think people, um, often forget about the, the, the fine art of nurturing a relationship that can stand the test of time. You know, at the end of the day, it, it's not overlooking uh, the relationships that you already have made. You don't know where they can lead. You don't know what they can help you with. And if nothing else, they can certainly support you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell me how a hat becomes a hat. So two things have to be in place in order for a hat to become a hat. The first thing is, well, in an abstract sense, there has to be an idea. But if there isn't a solid idea, at the very least, you have this beautiful carved wooden mold in front of you that's maybe a 1920s cloche style or maybe it's a men's fedora or maybe it's a quirky little fascinator and then you have a piece of material and that material via your hands and some steam and elbow grease and pins and pulling and pushing become something and the process of coaxing that material into a shape on its own is spectacular. I mean, if you've ever kneaded bread or worked with clay or done anything with your hands, if you're a visceral person at all, if you just love running your hand across a, uh, a rack of mohair scars, if that has, brings you pleasure, then imagine someone who's so tactile and actually fashions something with their hands. And are all of yours done by hand to this day? Yes, they By are. your two hands? Yes. My two hands, I do, uh, I block the, um, 
the samples for a collection, but the production is shared between myself and uh, five assistants. That was one of my questions was, who's helping you do this? You've got to have a, a small army of folks. Mm-hmm. Have you trained each and every one of these people? Have they come to you pre-trained? Or? Most people that come to me have either a back, some background, sometimes it's theater, sometimes it's textiles. There has There is generally an understanding of sew, basic sewing, um, and basic kind of design, everybody gets trained on the spot. Nobody comes with a hat making background because as, as milliners, hat makers, what have you, we all have our way of doing things. I have a way of doing things. Um, so I like to impart that knowledge and impart that experience at the training level. Um, along with that training also comes the language that we sell, that we the story, the narrative that we communicate to the customers, to the visitors, to the media, to anybody that crosses our path, there's a specific story that's important for me to tell. So I want to make sure that whoever comes in my little shop on College Street has a sense that, you know what, your stuff's made right here. That's the most important thing that I want people to know. And is that the core of that story? That's the core of that story. Yeah. And it's the one thing that every one of us, no matter which part of the the manufacturing processing that you are involved, that we are involved in, we can all say with pride, hey, we make your stuff here. And then I think that's really cool. I'm always really impressed when I'm traveling and I go into a shop in Portugal a couple years ago. Um, where they made brushes. There's just a guy and his father and they made these incredible clothes brushes and hand, and uh, um, scrubbing brushes and hair brushes. And it was just like, it was a freaking brush, but they were amazing. I spent hours talking to them. So that story is, is so important to me. It's something I never lose track of because it fills every day is, is hands to material hands to material. That I think for a lot of folks has become a much more important thing, whether they are the maker or the, or, or the buyer. It's important to know where your stuff is being made, where it comes from, who's making it and, and, and why you can feel okay wearing it or, or, or putting it forth to people to be worn. Mm-hmm. You go out there and you tell people we are handmade, we are local, we are uh, part of the community and, and, and we're putting hands on material. What does that mean to people when you're talking to them, for example, online? You know, uh, that's such a great question because the evolution of marketing as a small business and as a a maker um, has changed, certainly from the time that I started to now. I mean, if you wanted to be relevant, um, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, you bought ad space or you made a flyer or a catalog and you mailed them out to customers and you invited people by physical invitation or by phone to visit your shop or studio. You paid to have a space in a well-researched craft market um, to tell your story and have the opportunity for 30 seconds, which is sometimes all you have to tell your story. And that person has to want to stop and listen to it and say, hey, this is what I do. Now things are, oh, I mean, the marketing 
um, opportunities, both high end and uh, non paid, are are essential to business. Um, I think that what I can do is uh, to market myself. You know, other than hiring a, a marketing company, which I guess if I had endless, you know. Uh, sacks of money, I could do that. But I honestly feel like nobody tells my story better than I do in my voice, with my hand gesticulations, with, you know, my chaotic looking shop. I feel like that is the story. And yeah, I'd like to edit all of those things. But in the end, it's the authenticity of that story that I think connects with people. I, I may not always choose the best words but they're my words and they're my experiences. And I feel like putting my best self, this is going to sound a little new agey, but it, putting my best self forward is the best I, I can do um, with resources that are, you know, within my means. Um, and so what does that mean in terms of actual marketing? Well, it means sometimes you, co- you, you work with a designer who invites you to accessorize a collection and it may cost you time and material and maybe a hundred people will see it. Maybe five people will see it. Um, maybe it's, you know, 10 likes on your Instagram feed, but it, it, it's all something. I, I have to believe that it all amounts to something. It doesn't matter if you have a hundred fans, if they're the right hundred fans, those people are going to be the ones that, that buy your stuff and go to your shows and, and, and get the word out and amplify your message out there and, and, and promote right. you. So Right. As you're saying, it's that and it's this cumulative effect. And also, I mean, I think one of the most important things that I learned um, as as a single business owner is is getting to know your market. Because I remember, this is a funny story. My husband always laughs at when I tell him this story. You know, when you come in from the train and uh, you're along the the lakeshore, I guess, and they have all those uh, lawns that have like um, Deloitte and uh, Weber all spelled out in grass or flowers. And I used to think of them like, well, how expensive can that be? Maybe I should get one of those done, right? It's just grass. <laughs> yeah, it's just grass. How hard can it be? So, I mean, I think you have to be, I think you have to be very knowledgeable and be listening and learning who your customer is so that you can market to them. I know that me having a, an ad on uh at the Super Bowl would gain me no business whatsoever. Right. I mean, that's a ridiculous scale. But, you know, I also know that my customer may be not this demographic. It might be this one. And also, if you can, if, if you, in terms of just researching and develop your own brand and how you can reach other customers, well, that's a whole other conversation in your head about how do you stay relevant? How do you attract new customers as your core customer is aging or spending less or just not, they, they, they are just simply not your customer anymore. You are grateful for your history with them, but you have to keep moving all the time. You've spent a lot of time getting into your market, knowing who your, your buyers are finding new buyers, maintaining those relationships. How, how do you have time to actually make hats if you're doing all of that? Uh, gosh, that's a good question. I mean, you know, as a, as a, again, as, as a business owner, I think you actually never shut it down. You're constantly looking at the world through the lens of what you do. 
And sometimes that's great. And other times I wish that I could just shut it off and have a nine to five Monday to Friday job with two weeks paid vacation. Um, and certainly and many business people will say that the reason they got into business is A, because they didn't have the temperament to work for other people. Hello, that's me. And two, they wanted to make their own hours and you don't make your own hours. <laughs> it's in just fact, every hour. It's every hour. Yeah. And, and, if that thing still brings you joy, then that's great. And if you still continue to see the world through the lens of what you do, and is it still relevant, and does it bring other people joy, does it earn me a living, does it allow me to keep people working, then, man, that is freaking great. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into the hat game, wants to make their own hours, wants to run their own business, making their stuff? The most important thing would be, uh, in my opinion, is to, is to make connections with people. And that doesn't mean skulking around their booth or their shop. It means coming up to the owner with an outstretched hand that says, hey, I'm so-and-so, you know, I'm really interested in, in making hats. Do you have, can I, can, can you just tell me about what I do, what you do, or is there anything you can tell me? Because that is so welcome. Um, I would say, you know, step out of your comfort zone, ask questions. Like people are so, um, I think people are so open to a question being asked of them because we are at heart conversationalists. We are uh, descriptive. I think at heart we're giving. Um, Listen, all the information about how to make hats, where to buy raw materials, it's all out there now. It wasn't when I, um, when I started. And so I feel like for me to hold all that information and take it to my grave, it's not going to serve the industry very well. And listen, I'm almost 60 years old. Someone's got to take over this, right? Um, and, and I would hope that someone that, that wants to connect to the industry and connect to making hats is doing so because they, they have this need to express in a certain way. They have a way, they have a way with textiles. Um, they have some great ideas. You know, it, it's, it's all, it's all communal. And I think for me, the most important thing in my business has been being part of a maker community, whether it's, other hat makers who I love and respect, uh, local and from afar. It's ceramic people. It's, it's a, a shoemaker who I love. Um, you know, it's connecting to those people because our experiences um, and our skills are so connected. And we can relate to each other in terms of the struggles, especially now with small businesses being in such peril. It's, it's a really great time to say, hey, what are you doing to keep yourself going? And so becoming a part of that community, and I'm so lucky to have been part of the One of a Kind show, just as an example, for over 28 years, because the way that that show has evolved is so interesting. I mean, they, just as an aside, you know, craft shows have sort of been evolving to the point where the, it's kind of, there's expression that's like the Etsy 
gentrification of craft shows, which means that are things that are quickly made that are, you know, cute and fun and trendy, but God, are those people still going to be doing craft shows 15 or 20 years? Like where are the real um, ceramists and the potters and the wood turners and the bespoke jewelers? And where are those people? Where are they going to draw from uh, an arts and crafts community that will sustain a craft show, a market, you know, a venue for which to show your product, um, connect with other makers. Like how do we sustain that, that intricate part of our selling and working lives? I think these things are in a constant state of evolution, as you said. It may not be what we knew, but it'll certainly be something that meets the market at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, the, there's, there's those people that are genuinely interested in craftsmanship and in handmade and in locally uh, and ethically sourced stuff. That's the stuff that people are actually paying a premium for and going out of their way to go to markets for. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully there's a, a place and an opportunity for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Where can people find you? Oh, well, uh, the, the biggest, grandest place to find me is, um, is at my beautiful atelier shop right on College Street in the heart of Little Italy. Um, you can find me there six and a half days a week and online Instagram, Facebook. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us what you make for a living. Oh, thank you for letting me tell my story. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. Making a Living Show is brought to you by me, but if you'd like it to be brought to you by you, then become a patron of the program at makingalivingshow.com. There's a button there that will take your money and give it to me. You can find me at robylevy.com. Thanks for listening.